This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Grand Junction is in the heart of Trump territory. 64% of Mesa County voters chose Trump. It's also oil and gas country. And after a slump, there are signs of new activity. Some credit the new administration. David Ludlam directs the Western Slope Colorado Oil and Gas Association. Here in Western Colorado, we're seeing both the midstream companies, the ones who gather the gas and process it and get it to markets, and the producers who drill for natural gas, renegotiating contracts, getting rigs back to work, um, starting to permit again. Uh, we're seeing some hiring at the service companies and the vendors and contractors that for so long have been stressed. And so is it a recovery at this point? I, I wouldn't call it that, but we're seeing things move in the right direction. During the downturn in energy, another sector grew in the Grand Valley, outdoor recreation and tourism. That industry hopes to avoid a negative Trump effect. To talk through the tension is Christy Pollard, director of the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, and Sarah Schrader with the Grand Valley Outdoor Recreation Coalition. They're in our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. And uh, Christy, I want to start with you. President Trump has been in office just about nine weeks. Do you think there's a Trump bump in the energy industry there? You know, we've certainly seen an uptick in activity um, from the local energy um, companies that are here, as well as companies outside of the area contacting us for more information um, on operating here in Western Colorado. So, you know, certainly we're we're thrilled to see any uptick in our economy um, from energy to outdoor manufacturing to aviation and aerospace. But we certainly, within the last four to five months, we've started to see a, a deep increase in those sort of activity levels. Okay. But that activity, not just reserved, you're saying, to energy? No, it actually is not. We are starting to see some real growth um, in outdoor manufacturing, aerospace, um, a number of other um, IT-related companies. So we're seeing some real positive growth in our economy, um, as well as in the energy industry. So it's encouraging to us. Western Colorado has been slower to come out of the economic downturn than other areas. And so we're really encouraged about what we're seeing today. I'll say that in the energy sector, for instance, Halliburton, which thought it might close its Grand Junction presence, uh, is now hiring as many as 120 employees. Absolutely. And that was music to our ears. You know, energy is a legacy industry that we have here in Western Colorado. Um, But we've seen some um, ups and downs with that industry. So, you know, while we love to see growth within the energy industry, we are also working to diversify the economy so that we have other industry that can help us weather the storms. We just we don't have a lot of control over what happens with the energy industry simply because it's commodity based. So, um, So, yes, Halliburton uh, is growing, which is, again, music to our ears. Um, You know, before the before the end of the year, we thought that they might be putting up for sale signs. So we're certainly encouraged that they're going to continue to be here. And we're seeing some new hires happening even as we speak. Now, what evidence do you have that uh, any of that is related to the new administration and not especially in the energy sector, much broader forces? 
You know, there are a number of forces to play. You know, I think there is certainly um, within the regulatory environment, energy companies need um, they need to know what the regulatory environment is going to look like. And so um, I think there's some of that at play. Um, Again, you're seeing some rising um, prices within um, the price of natural gas. Um, It started to stabilize um, over the last few months. So, you know, I, I don't know that you can point to just one condition as being the um, the effect, but I, I certainly think that they're all playing into a very positive direction. Okay, so you think it's a part of the picture. So, Sarah, while uh, some cheer this turnaround, especially in energy, I wonder if the outdoor recreation industry is is quaking in its ski boots to some extent. I don't think so. I mean, we we are really working on collaborating with all growing industries in the Grand Valley. We have um, a, a growing economy. And I think that, I mean, I own a, an outdoor recreation-based manufacturing company, and I really have this remarkable opportunity to work with experienced welders, fabricators, and metal workers, as well as share a skilled workforce with the energy industry. Huh. And so I think that's, you know, one of the things that is really remarkable about owning a business in the Grand Valley. Um, That's one of the pieces that helps us uh, be successful. And I also think, I mean, there's a huge amount of growth in our valley in outdoor recreation and manufacturing because Western Colorado is an incredible place to live and work and play. I mean, we have everything within our fingertips. We have, you know, the, the Grand Junction is the junction of two wild and scenic rivers, the Gunnison and the Colorado. And we have um, Nordic skiing and downhill skiing. And we have a mesa with 300 natural lakes. And we have hunting and fishing and OHV and mountain biking. I mean, there's... And the list goes on. You sound like a Chamber of Commerce ad there. Um, (laughs) So I I want to just get some finer points on what I heard from you, which is that the outdoor recreation industry and potentially the energy industry share workers or abilities of those workers. Is that what I hear you saying, Sarah? I mean, that's what we have some incredible workers from the energy industry. Uh-huh. Some of our best project managers and superintendents and foremen are from the energy industry. And so I do think that Mesa County is in this incredible position where we can collaborate and work together. And the interesting thing about the the energy industry is that most people that work in the energy industry are also outdoor recreators. They they hunt and they fish and they ride mountain bikes and they care about clean air and clean water and they care about responsible um, energy policies. I want to say that that's what we heard from from David Ludlam. He's of the Oil and Gas Association out there. And I know that he's met with uh, you, Sarah, the Outdoor Recreation Board, and he describes himself as firmly entrenched in both energy and recreation. uh, But he says here that he doesn't view this cooperation as a new thing. I spent the majority of my childhood backpacking and hiking and biking and camping. And today I enjoy both mechanized and non-mechanized recreation. And I've spent my entire life here in the Grand Valley. So it's not lip service that I pay to having a a deep appreciation for these things. And all of my family and friends do too. So uh, many of my family and friends also work in the energy sector. 
You know, Sarah, some might argue that in light of climate change, though, fossil fuels are fundamentally at odds with recreation and that embracing both puts one at risk, especially if you throw in the administration's proposed cuts to the Environmental Protection Agency. How how would you answer that locally in terms of the cooperation you've seen on the ground on the Western Slope? I think that for us in Mesa County, it's really important to focus on what we can do locally and how we can help our local community. And so that for us looks like finding where we share beliefs and where we where we have commonalities. What's an example of that? Yeah. Well, let me, take me to a, a place, a meeting maybe where you found that common ground. I mean, I think David really summed it up really well. I mean, he wants clean air and clean water. He doesn't only want to focus on fossil fuels as as the only source of ener- energy. I mean, it's really important for a- us to diversify in not only our local economy, but also in our energy sources. And And my experience with Western Colorado Oil and Gas Association is that they aren't against solar energy or wind energy. They just see the awesome natural gas assets we have here, and they want to um, extract them responsibly. I mean – that that is what we are really working on together is trying to find those common grounds. Let me say that last year the U.S. Geological Survey said that the amount of natural gas in the Piance Basin of northwest Colorado had been grossly underestimated. The basin contains some 66 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, or about 40 times more than the previous estimate. Uh, let, let's take a step back here, uh, Christy Pollard, and, and address this question of economic diversity, because uh, your region has certainly seen booms and busts as it has been connected to energy. Uh, is this diversification that we've heard about, is it intentional? Is it something that you sat down and said, we, we've got to have eggs in different baskets? Yes, absolutely. It, it is. And, you know, we are rich in um, natural resource and natural gas. You know, the numbers that you quoted from the U.S. Geological Survey, that places us as number two for um, productivity in North America. So that is significant for us. And, and that's why we say that it will always be a legacy industry for us. But the organization that I represent, we were actually founded um, as a direct effort to diversify the economy. Um, what we experienced back in 2008-2009 was not the first time that Mesa County has gone through a bust cycle. And uh, my organization was founded back in the early 80s, um, right after the oil shale bust. And a group of business leaders came together and they said, you know what, we've got to do something to be able to weather these storms and to be able to stabilize during these downtimes. And so that really is what we have um, had a concerted effort toward. Um, you know, we know that there's unbelievable growth potential with outdoor manufacturing. Um, it is our, we, we, one of our number say, one. Yeah, I've heard you say outdoor manufacturing a couple of times. Give me an example. What does that mean? So is that clothing? Is that equipment? And um, yeah, put a finer point Absolutely. on it Absolutely. You betcha. So outdoor manufacturing, those are the companies that make the um, materials that we recreate on. We are home here in western Colorado to Leitner Poma, which manufactures ski lifts. We are also home to Sarah's company, Bonsai Design, which builds and designs adventure parks all over the world. We're also home to Mountain Racing Products, which manufactures mountain bike, um, mountain bikes and mountain bike components. 
difference. So there's a variety of those types of businesses that have chosen to locate here in Western Colorado because we've got a great qualified workforce. We've got a great university that is training an upcoming workforce, but we also have an unbelievable quality of life where you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have a a great day job and you can take your mountain bike out and mountain bike on your lunch break. You're going to be on the trails with maybe one or two of your best friends rather than a thousand of your best friends. So I hear you you making (laughs) reference to my side of the divide here in Metro Denver. So, um, Which is beautiful. <laughs> you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and uh, Grand Junction is surrounded by trillions of cubic feet of natural gas. But uh, drilling rigs have sat idle in recent years. Unemployment has climbed. And as director of the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, Christy Pollard is tasked with turning that around. Sarah Schrader also joined us. She's working through the Grand Valley Outdoor Recreation Coalition to make sure the outdoors are part of the turnaround. And um, Sarah, you know, I, I feel that you've, you've uh, cast this relationship um, in glowing and rosy terms, that is, between recreation and, and the energy industry. But do you have concerns about the new administration in this regard? I mean, of course we have concerns. But I, I think that really Mesa County serves as an example for what what the dialogue should look like. Mm. I mean, if if we spend all our time focusing on the things that make us different, then we're not going to be collaborating and working together. I mean, Christy and I don't always agree on everything, but I have a huge amount of respect for the work she's doing, and she has a huge amount of respect for the work I'm doing. And so I think that's where we are choosing to go in in this community. And really, I mean, there are so many wonderful things about being in Grand Junction. And so I think that if we focus on what what things bring us together, um, we really can only succeed. Uh, Christy Pollard, I know that Utah has taken some heat for some of its uh, political stances and that outdoor recreation companies are steering clear to some extent. You're right there uh, near the Utah border. Is that something that that uh, the Grand Valley, the Colorado side of it, hopes to take some advantage of? You bet. So, you know, with with outdoor manufacturing, obviously, we we want these companies to know that we're very open for business. And I think Sarah hit the nail on the head, that balance. I think Colorado and Western Colorado, we've got a rich history of that balance and the bipartisan nature by which outdoor recreation, outdoor manufacturing and energy can coexist. You know, it shouldn't be a partisan issue. It really is one that we've seen here in Colorado. Our governor has supported both industries. We've seen both Senator, U.S. Senators Cory Gardner and Michael Bennett support both industries. These are major industries to the state of Colorado, both when you look at the economic impact that they have. Both are showing over four billion dollars a year in salaries alone. And so I think, as Sarah indicated, we should be a model for the rest of the nation on how you can actually coexist. You can have that um, that collaboration and you can have opportunity for both industries to thrive. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. And so I think what we're trying to show here in Western Colorado and the state of Colorado as a whole is look 
at us. Let us show you how we can collaborate and focus on those opportunities for both industries to thrive. That is Christy Pollard. She directs the Grand Junction Economic Development Partnership. We also heard from Sarah Pollard. She's on the Council for the Grand Valley Outdoor Recreation Coalition, and they joined us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. We'll take a break and then look at how a different industry might fare under this new presidency. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. For marijuana businesses, celebration has turned to anxiety. You see, on election night, they were jubilant. California and three other states approved recreational marijuana sales. But now owners are left scrambling as the Trump administration sends mixed signals on cannabis. Here's CPR's Ben Marcus. Marijuana business owners are accustomed to risk and uncertainty, but this is different. Wanda James, who runs the Simply Pure Dispensary in Denver, now has to think about the possibility of President Donald Trump cracking down on her industry. Yeah, that would be terrifying. Um, Yeah, that could absolutely happen. And no, we don't know what the pushback would be. Pushback from the industry, but also the public. She pointed to one recent poll showing that more than 70% of respondents believe the federal government should keep its hands off states with legal cannabis. James is confident, though, that her business isn't going away anytime soon. But rumblings from D.C. are scaring off potential investors. You know, we have to talk people into just coming to the table. So, yeah, you know, something like this, the president said he's coming at you. Yeah, a lot of people are going to lose their their will to do this. This is an incredible turn of events. In the wake of the election, Colorado businesses were salivating over the expansion of recreational pot into new markets, especially California, home to nearly 40 million people. We thought it was a tipping point, but now it looks like an instability point because of Trump's election. That's Sean McAllister, a cannabis attorney and activist. He says no one's sure what the Trump administration's plans are. Trump's press secretary, Sean Spicer, hinted that there would be a crackdown on recreational marijuana. And Attorney General Jeff Sessions has consistently said that pot is more dangerous than people realize, adding that they're, quote, evaluating how we want to handle that, unquote. McAllister says this is already causing damage, citing an $8 million deal that just fell through here in Colorado. And that was a huge deal that would have built a new company and employed new people. But this federal uncertainty is absolutely putting a damper on investment. Still, McAllister is skeptical that the government can or even wants to stop Colorado's pot industry, which eclipsed a billion dollars in sales last year and employs 30,000 people. Look, I built my entire career on cannabis, and maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I don't believe we're turning back. That hasn't stopped several edibles manufacturers that he represents from drafting contingency plans to switch entirely back to medical marijuana. That's becoming more common, says Jeff Gard, a Boulder attorney specializing in cannabis. Because of uh, the offhand comment made by Mr. Spicer about uh, understanding the need for medical marijuana maybe being a bifurcated policy where Trump goes after recreational but not medical. During the campaign, Trump said he was 100% in favor of medical marijuana. So to help out the industry, state lawmakers are working on a bill that would make transitioning from recreational sales to medical sales easier. But medical is a far more limited market, just a fraction of recreational sales. And Guard isn't convinced that medical is the safe haven people think, 
leading to tough conversations in the industry. What we're talking about in the cannabis industry is the risk and threat of federal prison. Uh, this is not a normal and ordinary business risk that people are facing. Guard says the federal government has options. It could sue the state of Colorado, or it could just send threatening letters to pot businesses and their landlords. That was effective five years ago when the U.S. attorney shut down dozens of pot businesses that were too close to schools without having to kick down a single door. Sam Kamen is a constitutional law professor at the University of Denver. He says no matter what happens, pot shop owners should probably keep their heads down. So that when, you know, if you're the U.S. attorney for Colorado and Jeff Sessions says, yep, pick me some, right? Pick me five or six people to go after. You do not want to be the one that, that gets picked. If this all seems unfair, potentially targeting state and locally licensed businesses, Kamen says there's no way around the fact that Colorado's system is plainly against federal law. And you know, what people are realizing is what you know, we've mostly known all along, which is everything that exists right now exists because the federal government allows it to exist. The current allowance isn't even a law. It comes in the form of a memo from former President Barack Obama's Justice Department. Sessions seems to have said he won't radically depart from that policy. But the bottom line is, nothing is certain for the marijuana industry right now. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. So that's a view of the changing marijuana landscape in Colorado. For a national view, I'm joined by John Hudak. He's a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., and author of Marijuana, A Short History. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So there are seven states, along with the District of Columbia, that have legalized recreational pots, a total of 28 states that have some sort of legalized medical marijuana. Sales are in the billions. And national polls show a majority of Americans approve of legalization. So I wonder, John, is this a ship that's too big to turn around in some regards? Uh, No, it's absolutely not a ship that's too big to turn around. As the last segment uh, stated, uh, there are quite a few things that the federal government has at its disposal uh, to really disrupt uh, this industry. I think those in the industry have convinced themselves oftentimes that there's too much money in it, that there's uh, that it's too large, it's too big of an employer. But I think the, the best counter to that is looking at the recent health care bill, which would have disrupted a tremendously larger uh, industry and would have had uh, huge impacts uh, financially and in terms of jobs. Uh, and the White House was perfectly happy to go forward with that if they were able to get the votes. We have heard statements from people like Attorney General Sessions and Sean Spicer uh, threatening legalized cannabis. Uh, Why hasn't then there been action from the Trump administration in that regard? Well, so far, the Trump administration has been more bark than bite. Uh, The attorney general, DEA, FBI, and others have the capacity to get into states right now and start disrupting markets, start shutting people down, uh, start prosecuting people. They have chosen not to do that. Uh, The government has – the Justice Department has also chosen not to rescind the coal memos, uh, which is this patchwork that is allowing the marijuana industry to continue. That is not because it is an arduous process. That is not because it is necessarily complex. It is because the Attorney General of the United States has chosen not to rescind that. And that lack of action is actually a very meaningful policy. Cole, the Deputy Attorney General, right? Former – Yes, uh, under President Obama. Exactly. Um, Is this going to become like a really fascinating study of states' rights and whether they 
truly are protected under a more conservative administration? So this is not really an issue of states' rights. The states have no rights in this area Mm. to legalize marijuana. Um, The Supreme Court has upheld the power of the federal government to regulate drugs. And as the previous segment had mentioned, uh, this only exists not because the federal government is legalizing it, but because the federal government is choosing not to enforce the law. So really, there is no states' rights issue um, at play. This is going to be a test of the enforcement capacity and really the moxie of the federal government to try to turn back a system that has grown under uh, the federal government's watch and is now in a position where it is much larger, I think, than than most people expected. Again, it's not to say the federal government can't. Um, right now is whether the federal government has the will to do it. We've talked a lot about the executive branch, but let's focus more on the legislative. What is your sense of where Congress, and I I realize that it's made up of a lot of different people with a lot of different opinions, but to what extent might the legislative branch intervene here and provide some shield? The uh, the Congress has a real opportunity to protect the industry from executive branch enforcement. We have already seen this um, through a provision that was attached to a spending rider. This provision is often called the Rohrabacher-Farr Amendment, named after Congressman uh, Rohrabacher from California and former Congressman Sam Farr from California, which said that the Department of Justice can't use any funds to enforce against medical marijuana companies in states that have reformed their laws. The federal courts have upheld um, that provision that blocks DOJ um, from doing that. The Congress can expand that to include recreational. It can expand that type of protection in other areas. Right now, the government has chosen not to do that, but there is a spending bill coming up uh, at the end of next month where Congress has the opportunity to continue that protection. And to uh, stretch it out in some ways from medical to recreational, you're saying, is there support on the Republican side for that? Is Has this moved beyond just a, a like a liberal issue, do you think? Yeah, marijuana is one of those weird issues, uh, or uh, weird is one way to put it, rare is another way, uh, that there is a lot of bipartisan support. There are Democrats who don't like it. There are Republicans who don't like marijuana reform. But when you see these bills come to vote, yes, there tend to be a larger percentage of Democrats who support it, but there is a significant number of Republicans, um, either states' rights Republicans, libertarian Republicans, pro-business Republicans who see this as an industry who should that should be allowed to you know uh, stretch its legs. Um, there are a lot of different reasons why people come to the table in favor of marijuana reform. You see that in the public. You've seen it in Colorado, but you see it in the United States Congress as well. Last week, I understand you testified before the Connecticut legislature, which is considering legalizing cannabis. Uh, you don't take a position on one side or the other, but you rather show how to weigh the possible success or failures of implementation. Uh, that's one of a number of appearances you've made. I, I just wonder, has the atmosphere changed during appearances like that since the November election? Uh, not since the November election. I would say over the past few years, uh, the environment has changed to where uh, skeptics of this law seem to be, uh, of laws like this seem to be more intellectually curious, uh, and they come to the table 
oftentimes with opposition, but they're willing to hear what those ideas are. And so, like you said, I don't take a position in my work on whether reform is right or wrong, but I will talk about what risks and rewards uh, and processes a state must think about. So I, I spoke to the legislators in Hartford about tax policy and how overtaxation and undertaxation can have real deleterious effects for uh, a new industry like this and that trying to get tax rates right is a way to maximize revenue and displace the black market. I think that conversation, even for the most ardent opponent, is one that they would like to consider if the state of Connecticut chooses to move forward. How concerning is it for the industry that administration officials have compared marijuana use to the current opioid epidemic? And I'm referring there to comments from Press Secretary Spicer in February that indicated a connection. I think the industry is extremely worried about the uh, grouping of marijuana and opioids. Uh, It is something that's damaging to industry. It's something that can have PR issues uh, for the industry. It's something that's clearly frustrating for people who are producing and, and selling legal marijuana. But I actually think that kind of language is alarming to anyone who traffics in facts. It's not an issue just for industry. It's an issue for a researcher like me. It's a res- it's an it's an issue for people who study drug policy. I cannot imagine a uh, physician or public health expert in the country who would tell you that the opioid crisis in the United States presents the same threat uh, as uh, marijuana or or vice versa. That that. Marijuana is just as dangerous as opioids. These are ridiculous comments being uttered by federal government officials who have absolutely no idea what they're talking about and the dangerous consequences that come from those words. All right. Thanks for being with us, John. Thank you. John Hudak, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, also author of Marijuana, A Short History. Coming up, CSU animal scientist Temple Grandin will be inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame this year. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The National Women's Hall of Fame will induct a Coloradan this year. She is Temple Grandin, the famed animal scientist from Colorado State University. Grandin, who has autism, has pushed for slaughterhouses to treat animals better and to be transparent about it. Let's listen to our conversation from last summer. And to Temple Grandin, welcome back to the program. Good to be here. You've worked with the meat industry to change the way animals are slaughtered. How has life gotten better for livestock headed for slaughter in the U.S.? It's gotten way better. I've been in this industry for 40 years, and the 1980s and the 1990s were really bad. Then in 1999, I was hired by McDonald's Corporation to implement the animal welfare auditing, and I saw more change that year than in 25-year career prior to that. And we used a simple five-point scoring system. Percentage of cattle shot the single shot. If they didn't make 95%, they failed. You had to have 100% dead when you hang them up on the rail. No more than 1% falling. No more than three cattle out of 100 mooing on the stun box. And electric pride use, if you want an excellent score, had to be down to 5%. And that scoring system went across the industry. Other companies like Wendy's immediately started working on it. It has improved a whole lot. And then in the last five years, USDA has gotten more strict. There are further improvements. It's totally different now at the large meat plants compared to how it was 20 years ago. 
And where does there still need to be progress made? Well, the slaughterhouses or, or meat plants or harvest facilities, which some people like to call them. I'd rather just call them meat plants if you want a little nicer word than slaughter. Uh, the slaughter plants have really gotten good. They've gotten so good, they're not going to get much better. And where we're going to have to make some changes is some of the problems I see coming into the slaughterhouses. Most dairies are going to bring their dairy cows in, old dairy cows in, when they're still in, you know, good enough shape. There's a few people that allow some cattle to deteriorate to a very bad uh, condition before they're brought in. Problems with lameness. There's been some issues with lameness in beef cattle for various reasons. Another issue is extremely wild cattle. Animals differentiate between a man on the ground and a man on a horse. So if you have a rancher only handles them on a horse, then at the feed yard, they're only handled on a horse. And then when they get to the plant, they meet their first person on foot. That looks totally different. And that's novel and scary. And now the flight zone's just gone from three feet to 25 feet. And that can get dangerous in small pens. So when I see a problem now at the meat plant, it's something I have to fix out at the farm. You talked about problems with lameness and in dairy cows, a real deterioration of the animal. Will you expound on those? Well, a few dairy cows. All dairy cows, of course, you know, there's a point where they got to become beef. And the good dairies are going to... Um, bring them in when they're still uh, mobile, and yes, they're a retired dairy cow, but they're still in good condition. But there's a few people that will bring in a cow that they've allowed to deteriorate uh, too far gone, too weak, too much difficulty walking. The, The animal needs to be brought in when it's still fit for transport. And the lameness issue, say more about that. Lameness is simply difficulty walking. If you have a sore foot, you walk with a limp. Sore feet, And sore legs make you walk with a limp, and animals can have different degrees of limp, from very, very slight and would be perfectly good for transport, and maybe some animal that can barely walk. One of the most important things on transport is putting a fit animal onto that trailer. I cannot emphasize that enough. And how do you make improvements in terms of the number of lame animals that go through the system? Wisconsin has made great strides in reducing lameness or limping in dairy cows. Many different things can cause that. Hoof problems, sore legs due to bad housing. And when you measure lameness, and you can measure it on a simple uh, scoring system, Wisconsin has worked hard on reducing lameness, and it's about half the national average. There's various different things you have to do, and it gets down to details of management taking really good care of your stalls, making sure your stalls are well bedded. And then new facilities going in now, people are building the stalls big enough so the cow can lay down without hitting her legs on a concrete curb. So much of what we've discussed so far is about measuring. Uh, And yet... That's right. Isn't fundamentally the thing we can't measure pain in animals? I can ask a, a fellow person, you know, Rate your pain, 1 to 10. I can't ask a cow that. I can't ask a pig that. Talk to me about the idea of trying to sense or measure pain or stress in a creature that can't use language like we do. Okay, there's two places to measure pain and stress. The first is acute stress or pain. Okay, you uh, do a surgical procedure or simply handle a wild animal and it gets scared. And that's very easy to measure, uh, the acute stress. 
You can measure it by looking at stress hormones and behavior. Now, what gets more difficult is looking at long-term stresses, but there are ways to measure it. It is scientifically documented that cows that are limping have sore feet, and um, if you give them a painkiller, which you're not legally allowed to do that, but if you do, then they limp less. Now, that shows you right there that the sore feet hurt. Now, nature has a reason for having pain. Because if you keep walking on a foot that has something wrong with it, you're going to do further damage to the foot. But by doing it in an experiment where the animal was given a painkiller and they limp less, and that's a painkiller known to reduce pain in people, that tells you that they're walking on that bad foot because it doesn't hurt as much. And that's a scientifically documented finding. And that then influences all the factors you talked about related, for instance, also, to lameness. lameness effect. Lameness affects milk production. Now, the question you might ask is, how did the lameness levels get up so high? This gets back to not measuring it. You see, you can get something where it creeps up on you slowly and you don't see it. Then when you finally go out and you measure it and you go, well, yee, gads, this is really bad. So then in Wisconsin, they started really working on a program to reduce lameness. And we've got dairies here in Colorado that are excellent. I've been to some of them, and there's very, very low levels of lame dairy cows. What are other ways, maybe on the horizon, of measuring pain, stress, discomfort in animals? Well, there's some other methods right now that are being used that are way too complicated to use on the farm. They can use a research lab where they'll do a painful procedure in a wake conscious animal, and then they'll do just a little tiny light anesthesia and kind of put it to sleep, and they'll compare the differences on the EEG. You know, that's a relatively uh, new method. But it is known that animals feel pain. Another experiment that was done probably 10 years ago, our experiment's called a self-medication experiment. This has been done in rats, it's been done in chickens, and I'll explain it. In a self-medication experiment, they would artificially create a painful inflamed joint by injecting some stuff into it that would really mess up the joint. Then, the rat has a choice between two different water bottles, one that's full of a fast-acting painkiller that's bitter, and the other water bottle has just got plain water. And when that leg's all sore, and they can actually measure the inflammation, it will drink that nasty painkiller. And then uh, when the leg heals, it will drink the regular water. That shows that an animal will eat or drink something that tastes bitter to reduce the pain. Now, there's some differences between an animal and us because it, we castrate cattle, make a steer out of them, well, if that same operation gets done on a person, the person knows what they've lost. The calf doesn't know what he's lost. It just hurts at the time. He doesn't know that he won't grow up into a great big bull that will be able to breed. He doesn't know that. <laughs> that surgical experiment you talked about sounds kind of horrific, really. Well, actually, they were doing that research to try to figure out if slaughter without stunning was painful because um, kosher, kosher slaughter, you don't stun the animal first. They were trying to determine if that caused pain. And there's still a lot of stuff up in the air on that because the type of knife you use is very, very important. And I actually read the latest paper, and they did not describe the type of knife they used. And to people, though, who, who say that experiment is unsettling? The procedures they did are procedures that are already going on in the industry. So you're taking a procedure the industry's already doing, which is done conscious, and then comparing it to uh, the lightly anesthetized and looking at the EEG. They're not coming up with some kind of new, weird, bad thing they're doing. They're doing stuff that's being done every day. Kosher slaughterhouses were already doing this. 
and some of the halal slaughterhouses were doing this. The uh, big plants like we have in Greeley and Fort Morgan do not do religious slaughter. But this is the idea that in these kosher slaughterhouses, they're not stunned, in other words, before... They are not stunned. That's correct. Hmm. And so then a big issue right now, it's very controversial in Europe, is does it hurt the cut, the throat, and the conscious animal? Now, I've designed restraint boxes to hold the animal uh, kosher slaughter, and I've operated the box myself. And when you have a really good rabbi with a super big, long, sharp knife that they use... The animal made very little reaction, and if I waved my hand in his face, he'd make a bigger reaction. But if you use the wrong kind of knife or the wrong procedures, again, procedures really important, yes, they'll react to it. You're saying that the the cattle reacted more to your hand-waving than they did to the actual slaughter. They did. Yeah. You know, if you're going to do slaughter without stunning, uh, it's much more sensitive to details of procedure than a regular slaughtering with a captive bull. You are arguably the most famous autistic person in the world. Um, Remind us how that condition has helped you come up with ways to improve livestock handling. I'm a visual thinker. We've been talking about meat plants, some of the meat plants like Greeley and Fort Morgan. When I talk about those plants, I actually see them in my head. When I talk about um, animal handling, I see them walking through the system. When I talked about the McDonald's audits, I actually am seeing some of the places where we did those original audits. So I'm an extreme visual thinker. Animals don't think in words. It's sensory-based. What is it seeing, smelling, hearing? It is a sensory-based world. And some of the very earliest work I ever did with cattle handling was in Arizona. And I got down in the, in the chute, and I noticed that they'd see a shadow and stop. They'd see a coat on a fence and stop. There'd be a reflection on the floor. They would stop. Nobody else had even thought to even look at that. It was something that just seemed completely obvious to me. And and when I first started doing this, I thought everybody thought in pictures like I do. We are listening back to a conversation with Colorado State University animal scientist Temple Grandin. Later this year, she'll be inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. Coming up, video in slaughterhouses. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation from last year with CSU animal scientist Temple Grandin. This year, she'll be inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. She spoke to me from Fort Collins about improving the lives and deaths of livestock. Can we go back to a lot of what you've talked about for mainstream slaughterhouses? To what extent are the systems you've described voluntary or mandatory? Well, the McDonald's uh, program back in 1999, when that started, yeah, it's an industry volunteer system. But if they did not do it, the plant would be thrown off the approved supplier list. And uh, McDonald's buys from like 90% of the big plants, and some of those big plants could be losing a million dollars worth of business a year, so there was an incentive to do it. And then a few years ago, the USDA got a lot more strict, and if they don't do that, they get shut down. Some might hear our conversation and think, uh, duh, animals experience pain. I could, I could tell you that easily in terms of my cat or my dog. Why are we spending money researching something that we clearly already know? Well, cattle and sheep are grazing prey species animal, and they will sometimes not show the behavior of features of pain when you're watching. 
because you don't want to advertise to the wolves or the lions if you're a grazing animal that you're hurt. And I saw a situation where they um, did some castration on some big bulls, and I hid in the scale house. And when the bull came out of the chute, he didn't know I was in the scale house. And he was rolling around on the ground moaning, definitely showing pain. And I walked out of that scale house, and he immediately jumped up and acted normal. Prey species animals will cover it up, and sheep are the worst for doing that. That's why some people that have sheep will go, oh, fine today, dead tomorrow, because uh, they cover it up even more than cattle do. So in order to study um, pain behavior really well, uh, you need to do it with video cameras so that animal doesn't know they're observed, or it has to be done in front of a person that the animal really trusts and then they'll show the, beha- the pain behavior. Because ranchers will say to me, oh, it got right up after we, we dehorned it and it drank water and it ate. Yeah, that's exactly what you know, this bull did when I walked out. He jumped up and acted fine. But when I was hit in the scale house, he was rolling around on the ground moaning. Fascinating. And so you think video is, is in part an answer to this. And I want to focus on the proliferation of undercover videos of slaughterhouses. Animal rights groups have made several showing extreme cruelty. Yeah, and by the very industry. bad things showed up on those videos. You've made your own videos showing when treatment can be humane. Um, here's a bit of a series you made with uh, the North American Meat Association. You're in a sheep slaughterhouse showing one part of a slaughter stunning an animal, again, when an animal is made unconscious before it's slaughtered. The sheep ride to the stunner in a V conveyor restrainer. This plant uses electrical stunning, head-to-back stunning. They have to wet it first to make good electrical conductivity. Electrical stunning will cause instantaneous unconsciousness by passing a current through the brain. Next, we watch as those sheep have their throats cut. Why is it important that people see and understand this? Well, I have worked in this industry for 40 years, and I've worked on making a lot of improvements. And the meat plants today are light years better than they were even 10 years ago. And I want to show people how it can be done right, because all the videos that are out there is just all this horrible stuff. Let's show how it's done right and explain it. And with the North American Meat Institute, we've done beef plant video tour with Temple Grandin and pork plant video tour, sheep plant video tour, and turkey plant video tour. And I just wanted to show this is how it's done right um, the sheep one is our best one. We got better at doing these as we went along. It shows the whole entire process completely. Um, to go back to your what you said previously, that the, the problems in the future really are going to be on the farm versus the slaughterhouse. Why is that? What, what's happening at the farm? Well, the reason is, is that there's questions, uh, you know, concerns about how pigs are housed, sows in particular, in gestation stalls, and how laying hens are housed. And that's not an issue for the slaughterhouse. Slaughterhouse has nothing to do with that. Is that your area of focus next, then? The farms no, themselves? No, my one thing I've been talking about uh, on my own research is uh, the importance of stockmanship. And another issue I've looked at is uh, some lameness and leg conformation issues in beef cattle. We need to make sure that when we breed animals, that we don't breed problems. Okay, let's, I'm going to take an example that has nothing to do with the farm animal. Let's look at the bulldog. If you go online and you type in bulldog's dilemma into Google for images, you'll find a picture of a bulldog that actually functions. 
It's got a short snout, but it actually has a snout, and it's got longer legs. And then you look at some of the monstrosities that are breeding today. They can barely walk. They can't have their babies naturally, and even after they have surgery, they still can't breathe. That's bad becoming normal. That was just done with old-fashioned breeding over the years, since 1938. And it's really important that we don't let these problems creep up on us. That is Temple Grandin, professor of animal science at Colorado State University. We spoke last year. This year, she'll be inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.